We're going to be in First Kings uh, 20 and 21. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you now for the privilege of being able to look into your word. And we ask that you would guide our thoughts and guide our words, guide me as I seek to present the truth that's here in your word. And Lord, I pray that <clears throat> these things would be things we listen to and that we think about. And Lord, help us to be able to apply them the way that you want us to in our own lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Nineteen seventy two, I had the privilege of traveling and doing summer missions in Germany during the Olympics that were going on at that time. And while we were in Germany, um, we had we actually took some time and went to a place called Dachau. And Dachau was one of the Nazi death camps. <clears throat> I was 17 years old, I think, as I went through there. And I had read about the Nazis before, but walking through the buildings and seeing the displays and pictures that they had left was one of the most hardest things I've ever been through. I think if someone had asked me before I went through Dachau, what, how, what does evil look like? Or what does, how do you define evil? I would have been hard pressed. But afterwards I could say, I know what evil looks like. Things that were done <clears throat> were of the most hideous kind. And uh, if you've ever studied or seen any of that, just understand. <laughs> this is something that was horrendously evil. And as I've read about <clears throat> King Ahab and Jezebel and looked at what they did, and even the verse we just read a second ago, we'll be going back to that later, where it says that Ahab did the same things the Canaanites did, the Amorites did, before God brought Israel in to kick them all out. So he was evil in his practices and in the things that he did. Now, just kind of for context's sake, last couple of weeks we've been talking about uh, different things that happened. And after Mount Carmel, uh, the big, huge... Um, display of God's power and how he showed that he was God and Baal was nothing. Um, 400 prophets of Baal were executed and then um, Jezebel challenged Elijah and said, I'm going to, I'll get you. You're next. You, You have less than 24 hours to live. So he spends about 40 days traveling to Mount Sinai and God reminds him that he is still in control while he's on Mount Sinai. I mean, you think about it. He saw the fire come down from heaven at his prayer. He prayed again and rain came after three and a half years. And now he's on the mountain and he sees the wind come and break the rocks all around him. And then he, and then he feels the whole mountain shake. And then he sees the flames and feels the heat. And then he hears the gentle whisper. And the question, put it up there if you would, Daryl, yeah. What are you doing here, Elijah? 
And then the Lord spoke to him, gave him some things that he's going to have them do, but then he said this, go back, verse 15, go back the same way you came. You still have a ministry. You still have not completed all that I have for you to do. So go. Go back the way you came. And then God just says something at the end, just before that passage ends. Hey, I still have 7,000. You thought you might be alone, and you were thinking maybe that there was nobody left but you, and that you're the only prophet, and all these other things. There's still 7,000 people who have never bowed the knee to Baal. And so at that point in the narrative, Elijah kind of disappears. And we'll be catching up with Elijah a little bit later in the book. But uh, we we jump jump into chapter 20. And in chapter 20, we have the nation of Amram, or some people refer to it still as Syria. There's two major battles that take place. And those are the battles we're just going to kind of look at a little bit as we move on through um, to finish this section the first invasion was in First Kings 20, and Ben-Hadad comes in, and they have some battles, and it looks like he's going to be able to wipe them out completely, so they enter into negotiations. And the negotiations that they had was, okay, if all you Israelites would put down all your, all your weapons and just stop fighting, let us take your wives, your children, and anything else we want, well, then we'll let you, we'll let you live. It was kind of like, you know, really? Verse 20, verse 13, chapter 20, verse 13, however, I love this. There was a certain prophet came to see King Ahab of Israel and told him, This is what the Lord says. Do you see all these enemy forces? Today I will hand them all over to you, and then you will know that I am the Lord. And so you see God's goodness here, and in a lot of ways, He's, He's, over and over and over gone and pointed out to Ahab, listen, you're trying to, you're worshiping Baal and doing all these horrendous evil things and I'm right here and I'm the only God there is. I'm the only one. And I'll show you that by giving this army into your hands so that you will at that point wake up and see that I am the Lord and there is no other. So <clears throat> there is this, um, the prophet actually stays, hangs around, tells him to attack, and uh, they attack the camp while all of the leaders of the um, of Amram are in their tents drinking and getting drunk and not being able to do much of anything, and so they come in and they, they literally just uh, start the attack and they, the rest of the enemy just runs. Um, verse 22, after this huge, huge victory, The prophet said to King Ahab, Get ready for another attack. Begin making plans now, for the king of Aram will come back next year. He said, Okay, God took care of this, and you saw how he took care of this, and you understood that this was God that did this, but they will be back next year. So make plans, prepare for that. That's coming. I find it fascinating that... We've had Elijah specifically talking about him, and yet now we get into the section where there's some some pretty hard things that that this prophet's being asked to do, and we're never even told his name. The prophet, the man of God, but never once do we hear who he is. Um, And if you're the kind of person that wants those details, it just kind of, you know, drives you nuts. You want to give him a name. (laughs) Anyway, so now... 2 Kings 20, 23 through 25, Ben-Hadad's counselors tell him, and, and look at verse 23, 
After their defeat, Ben-Hadad's officers said to him, The Israelite gods are gods of the hills. That's why they won. But we can't, we can beat them easily on the plains. Remember, many people in that time frame believed in local deities. Okay, so here's the god of, of the river, and here's the god of the plains, and here's the, the god of, of this and that. And the reality is that when you have the Lord God, He's the God over all of it. You couldn't just say he's in the mountains or the plains. And so they make their plan for the next attack based on that, that thought. So chapter 20, verse 26, the following spring, just like the prophet had said, the following spring, um, they called up Aram uh, army, I'm sorry, they called up the Aramean army and marched out against Israel. This time at Aphek, which is a little town somewhere in north, probably western uh, Israel. We don't know where exactly because three or four different towns had that same name because the name meant fortress. So they come and they set up their camp. <clears throat> um, Israel then mustered its army, set up supply lines, and marched out to battle. This is an f- interesting phrase, the way this is put. But the Israelite army looked like two little flocks of goats in comparison to the vast Aramean forces that fill the countryside. So again, they, they have their camps on opposite sides. They can see each other. Uh, but the Israelites are so few that, you know, the basic other thing is like a couple of herds of goats over there. We're going to stomp them and it'll be all over with. I'm sure that's what the Arameans were thinking. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, at, at, the man of God comes, verse 28, the prophet, went to the king of Israel and said, This is what the Lord says. The Arameans have said the Lord is the God of the hills and not of the plains, so I will defeat this vast army for you. Again, you got to love the fact that God is saying, hey, I, I want you to understand something. I'm the one that's doing this. So we will defeat this vast army for you. Then you will know, again, that I am the Lord. Seven days go by. They're just kind of looking at each other. Uh, thinking about what the next step's going to be. The number of the forces were, I mean, they really were outnumbered 10, 15 to 1, from what we understand of the numbers. But um, at, finally they come towards each other in battle. And um, <clears throat> the, the people of Israel just start marching out towards the other lines. They come in. And the way it's stated in the passage, they... Each person went ahead and killed the soldier in front of them, and that caused a panic in the rest. And they just started slaughtering each other, and over 100,000 were killed at that point, uh, just because the Israelites started marching towards them. And the rest ran into the town of Aphek, and the wall, God caused the walls to collapse on them, another 27,000 were killed there. In First Kings 20, 29 through 34, this is a military disaster. For Ben Hadad. And in the end, he gets to a point where he's begging for mercy. Um, <clears throat> he's begging Ahab for mercy. And this is an interesting thing. Ahab had been told, we're gonna, you know, you need to take everybody out, including, you know, all the leaders, etc. And, uh, Ahab comes face to face with Ben Hadad, who's trying to, to get, you know, some kind of a deal together so that he's gonna die at, at this point. He, he doesn't want to be executed. And Ahab, accepts his surrender, and decides to go ahead and make a treaty with him. 
And so he forms an alliance with him, and they put this treaty together, which um, Ben-Hadad gives back a number of the towns that his father had taken from Israel, give those back to Israel. And then he says, listen, we'll set up places where you can come and do commerce in, in the towns of Damascus. And so they've got this economic thing and other things pulled together that Ahab has done as a result of, uh, you know, this, this battle that has taken place. And, and, and the hard part in this is that here God twice has just devastated Aram. And, and it appears that Ahab was thinking of not Aram so much as the Assyrians who were looming to the north and were coming down. And he thought, well, maybe I can get this, uh, you know, Ben-Hadad to join me and we can then take on the Assyrian, or the, the Assyrian army together. And the reality was, what was God doing? Telling him, hey, I'll take care of this army for you. But he said, no, 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 I, I can trust, I can trust Ben-Hadad more than that. And so he makes that. <clears throat> that alliance. Now, just kind of implication. Uh, again, I was going through, who, who was the unnamed prophet? Who's this unknown prophet? Who's this man of God who was bringing all of this amazing, incredible news and bringing information that they need and, and saying, listen, this is God that wants you to know these things. And the reality is we just don't know. Um, we recognize him as a prophet of God because the reality is he forecast some things, and sure enough, they happened exactly as he said they would. Maybe he was one of the prophets that Obadiah had hid. Remember, there was the 50 prophets in two different caves that he was hiding from Jezebel. Maybe he was one of the prophets that Elijah was training. They were starting to set up places where they could train people. Um, But the most amazing thing is that this unknown prophet does some very, very difficult things. And we are never told who he is. Never told. I mean, the important thing is obviously that God knows. Um, but maybe he's one of those unnamed people from Hebrews 11. And I love Hebrews 11. We, we know by name how many of them are, are, are named specifically. But then you get down towards verse 36. And this is the part that I absolutely enjoy looking at. Some faced jeers and flogging while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. These are the prophets of God. And then he goes on to say, The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in the deserts and the mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. And that probably is a reference to some of the prophets that were hidden during this time frame by um, Obadiah. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. And so you've got all these prophets, and all these prophets are doing all these incredible things. And, And here in Hebrews it says, these are people of faith. And they've got, they've got a mention here in, in this chapter where all those big name people are. Well, here they are as well. Those who wandered in the desert and mountains and caves and who wore sheepskins, goatskins, and who were destitute and persecuted. They weren't forgotten. They had been called and they did the ministry and the job that God called them to do. And God remembers. They were faithful in victories, and they were faithful before kings. They were faithful while they were hiding in caves, or faithful while they continued to trust God when nobody else around them was. 
trusting God. And even if nobody knows about us or what we're doing, God does not forget. And that's the important thing for us to think about. Sometimes I think we get to thinking, oh man, I'm the only one doing this, or, or you know what, I feel so alone, I feel like nothing, nothing I do matters. Elijah certainly felt like that at, at, uh, when he was on Mount Sinai. But Hebrews 6.10 says this, God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for Him and how you have shown your love to Him by caring for other believers as you still do. And I, I just was looking at that. How is it that, that the writer from Hebrews was saying, you know, you show your love for God by doing what? By caring for these others. He's referring at that point to, to people who have been suffering and going through really hard times. But I think you can apply that now. We, we show our love for God by caring for His people, by caring for those that are hurting and struggling. <clears throat> There's a missionary song that I remember my mom singing uh, numerous times when we were on furlough. Um, and it was written by a, a woman named Mary Clarkson. Uh, you've probably heard it if you've ever been to a missions conference. It's called So Send I You. And um, <clears throat> this is, uh, I'm just going to quote a couple of the verses. So send I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing. So send I you to toil for me alone. So send I you to loneliness and longing, with heart a-hungering for the loved and known, forsaking home and kindred, friend and dear one. So send I you to know my love alone. That's interesting. She wrote this very early in her life, and, and she went back and talked about the fact that she was really hurting and going through some times, and she was totally alone. And so she wrote these words, <clears throat> And Carol and I were talking about it, and it's not that that as missionaries we ever felt, oh, this is terrible, it's horrible. But there are many times that these words expressed how things felt to us at times. We weren't saying these things were true, that people had forgotten us, weren't supporting us. That wasn't it. But sometimes when you're a long way away from what you know, and you're investing in people in a culture, and you're you're, it's just hard many times, and you don't know how to handle that sometimes. Anyway, so she wrote the song, and, and many I know many missionaries um, can identify with those words. But this is interesting. 1963, the same lady had grown in her in her walk with the Lord, and and she looked at what she had written, and she said, "Man, that's really bleak," and and uh, I, I'm not sure I like how I wrote this. And so she wrote a whole other set of verses to it, based on the fact that she believed God's word. Um, was a strong thing that she needed to communicate. Let me just read these. Again, there's four verses, but I'll just read three of these. So send I you by grace made strong to triumph, or hosts of hell, or darkness, death, and sin, my name to bear, and in in that name, in that name to conquer, so send I you my victory, to wind. So send I you my strength to know in weakness, my joy in grief, my perfect peace in pain, to prove my power, my grace, my promised presence. So send I you eternal fruit to gain. 
And then the last verse of, of her revised version is this. So send I you to bear my cross with patience, and then one day with joy to lay it down. To hear my voice, well done, my faithful servant. Come, share my throne, my kingdom, my crown. And I just, as I was reading this yesterday, for the first time I wasn't aware of the second set of verses, I thought, you know what? That's what we all should be working towards. Hearing the Lord say, well done. Good and faithful servant. It's not just missionaries. It's, it's not just pastors. It's every single believer has a chance to hear from the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. It applies to all of us. We are sent to the places where we work, to the families that we're in. We're sent to the places we go to school, and we are sent with that same message, that same hope of God's love to share. Like the unknown prophet, and we may nobody may ever know who we are, but to faithfully keep on going, serving and honoring Christ, and to be able to hear, someday, well done, good and faithful servant. We're going to move into chapter 21 and just kind of work through this quickly. Chapter 21 is the is probably, if you've been in church all your life, you've uh, heard this story over and over and over. Uh, it's the whole idea of Ahab wanting Naboth's vineyard. And uh, verse 1, it says, There was a man named Naboth from Jezreel who owned a vineyard in Jezreel beside, and this was the summer palace that Ahab had. He lived in Samaria most of the time. Um, The summer palace, King Ahab of Samaria. And he offers to buy it, and he offers to give him a a better vineyard. He just wants that land because it's right next door to to his summer palace. And verse 3, Naboth says, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that was passed down by my ancestors. He said, I can't do this. It's not even my land. And one of the things that as you look at the land laws, the land laws were all designed to keep the land within the family. Uh, that's why even things like you, you could sell the use of the land, but you couldn't sell the land itself. You couldn't get rid of the land. And it always came back to the family, even if it had been leased out or whatever. Um, that's what, Part of that was having to do with the year of Jubilee. So anyway, Naboth is apparently a man who is serious about the word, the word of God and serious about what, what it meant. And so what does he do? He says, no, I can't sell it. It's not even mine. It's, it's the family's. And so verse 4, I thought I'd read this. This is, this is uh, the great King Ahab. Went home angry and sullen because of Naboth's answer. The king went to bed with his face to the wall and refused to eat. Wah, wah. <laughs> really? This is the king of Israel? You're kidding. Anyway, his, uh, his wife Jezebel is wondering what's going on. She asks him what's going on. And, um, and in verse 7, she answers, Are you the king of Israel or not? Get up and eat something and don't worry about it. I'll get the vineyard for you. So Jezebel steps up and says, eh, Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll take care of it. Um, and she sends letters to the people of the town where... Uh, Naboth lives, 
And she tells them what she wants them to do. Okay, She wants them to convene a special assembly. Um, verse 11, the elders of the town, the leaders followed Jeze- instructions Jezebel had written to the, in the letters. They called for a fast and put Naboth in a prominent place before the people. So the whole village comes together, they gather, they've got a fast that they're, they're fasting for some reason. Uh, many times this was done in order to make sure that sin didn't cause the whole village to suffer. And while they're doing this, and Naboth's in this prominent position, verse 13, two scoundrels came and sat down across from him. They accused Naboth before all the people, saying he cursed God and the king. And so he was dragged out of town and stoned to death. That's what happened to Naboth. Um, and again, this is, this is something where they, they were trying to make it look legal in all kinds of ways. You know, you had two witnesses. Yep, got two witnesses. We both heard him. And uh, what did he do? Well, he cursed God and he cursed the king. Well, that's an instant uh, death penalty. And uh, they, all they had done was follow the instructions that Jezebel had sent them for how to get rid of this guy. Now, in order to make the seizure of this vineyard legal, this is what had to happen. We've already read how part of it happened. They had to have corrupt judges willing to make false accusations. They had to have witnesses willing to make false accusations. And then Naboth had to die. The false, falsely accused for cursing God, he had to die. What's not mentioned here, but is mentioned in Second Kings, his sons all had to die too. Because he could not pass down to the next generation. So they kill Naboth, they kill all of his sons. We don't know how many it is, but all of his sons are killed. That's what this evil woman did in order to give Ahab his little vineyard. So when she heard the news, she goes in to tell him, Hey, guess what? Remember that vineyard you wanted? Well, it's yours. Ahab, uh, or um, Naboth is dead. And... um, it's in this time frame God sends Elijah. So he comes back into the picture and he's going to confront Naboth or confront Ahab. And so he, he's in the vineyard. Ahab is walking around looking and Elijah comes up to him. Verse 20, so my enemy, you have found me. Ahab exclaimed to Elijah. And Elijah answered, I have come because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the Lord's sight. So now the Lord says, I will bring disaster on you and consume you. I will destroy every one of your male descendants. Uh, verse 22, I'm going to destroy your family. Um, and then regarding Jezebel, the dogs will eat Jezebel's body in the, in the place that um, <clears throat> Naboth was killed. And, and really what's being said here in this, essentially this is God saying, here's my judgment on Ahab, Jezebel and the family. There will be no dynasty. There will be no no uh, continuing of of this um, line of kings. And the most powerful thing, on, on some levels, for the culture of the day, was there will be no burials. All these people are going to die and be eaten by either animals or birds, uh, which was a shameful, horrible thing to have to go through. Now, at this point in the text, verse twenty-five. There's an evaluation that the writer inserts there uh, of of Ahab. Look at what it says. No one else so completely sold himself to 
to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did. Now, to sell himself means that he was all in on evil. He, that's, he wanted to do the things that were evil. He was committed to doing evil. That's what it means when he says he sold himself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. <clears throat> Verse 26, his worst outrage was worshiping idols just as the Amorites had done. And if you remember any of that information that we get about that whole culture, there was all kinds of sacrifices, human sacrifices, and and uh, even worse than that. Um, Ahab never met a sin that he turned away from. He pursued evil in every way. I have a quote here that really struck me. An innocent man and his sons lay dead. An evil king and queen had made a mockery of justice. Responsible citizens had engaged in this great evil. And God had not intervened to prevent this from taking place. Evil appears to have won, to have spoken the last word. But although God's judgment is not always immediate, it is always certain. And I think that's something when you look you look at a passage like this and you look at the the darkness really that's kind of hanging over Ahab and Jezebel and everybody and, and the evil that they've committed and, and um, the judgment of God comes. It doesn't always come the way we want it or in the time that we want it. But it always comes. God's judgment is certain. It's His timing and His way that He, he does it. We have an interesting happen in verse 27. When Ahab heard this message about the, the judgment on him and his family, he tore his clothing, dressed in burlap, and fasted. He even slept in burlap and went around in deep mourning. Then another message from the Lord came to Elijah. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has done this, because he's put on the burlap and fasted and gone into deep mourning. I will not do what I promised during his lifetime. It will happen to his sons. I will destroy his dynasty. So it's an interesting thing here that happens. For the first time in all of the years, Ahab responds to one of God's prophets. Um, the question that springs up immediately is, okay, so was he faking it? Was it real? How do we know whether or not this repentance was really repentance at all? And um, I think one of the things we need to realize is that God is the one that called Elijah Elijah to, to see and, to, and say, hey, look, look at this. Look at what has happened. Look what Ahab has done. And God responds to what Ahab has done and says, okay, well, I'm not going to bring the judgment the same way I had planned. I'll, I will bring judgment, but I won't cause all of the family to be slaughtered until after Ahab has died. And this is a, kind of a, one of those illustrations where you go, what in the world? Why, does, why doesn't God just get it over with? That's me, maybe. But, that, you know, that's what I was thinking. You know, it's time for this guy to go. But God's patience is there. And God's mercy and his grace. And, and I think we need to go back to it. He really is not willing for anyone to perish. And so we think that through. Now, <clears throat> for a time it appears Ahab may have been 
doing this. And in the next chapter, we find out that he still is consorting with Baal and, and the prophets of Baal. Um, but again, I, I do think this is a good example of God's grace and mercy that's offered over and over and over. I mean, how many times did, did Ahab see something spectacular that God had done? I mean, he saw the, the fire come down from heaven and consume the altar that was built to God. Um, the first attack by the Arameans, hey, king, we'll t- God's going to take care of this for you so that you will know that there's only one God. Second attack, same thing. You will know that there is one God and only one God. So <clears throat> after stealing Naboth's vineyard with the murder of Naboth and his sons, all the stuff, God pronounced judgment on Ahab and Jezebel. But Ahab responded by tearing his clothing and, and going into deep mourning. Uh, what does that all mean? Um, it appears that at least for the time, for that point in time, God is accepting that from Ahab as something that is that is real. I don't know. There's no place that tells us was this real and was he you know serious about God. There's no verse that tells us that. Uh, and of course, if you continue reading, you'll find out that Ahab is just as evil down the road. Um, but I, I do think God is still giving him that chance and showing Ahab his grace. Uh, Ahab humbled himself, and God responded to that step that Ahab took by saying, "Okay, um, I'm not going to do all these things until after you've you've died." Um, the message I think for us here is is that God wants our hearts focused on Him. Um, that was what God kept calling Ahab to. Look, I'm doing this so that you'll know I am the Lord and there is no other apart from me. There is no God. I want you to know that, Ahab. You, you've been chasing after Baal, but I am the only one that counts. Isaiah 45, 5 and 6, I am the Lord. There is no other apart from me. There is no God. God wants all men and women everywhere to understand, to know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I don't know about you. I'm really thankful for God's patience with me, uh, with my family. I thank God for His grace and mercy. I don't understand all the stuff that happens with Ahab and, and God and, and um, Him showing kindness and, and mercy at this point. But I'm thankful that He shows it to me. I'm thankful that He offers His grace and mercy to anyone. Matter of fact, uh, as I was studying this, the, the the song praise the lord his mercy is more stronger than darkness new every morn our sins they are many his mercy is more let's let's sing that praise the lord his mercy is more stronger than darkness new every morn our sins they are many his mercy is more now that we know it let's do it again praise the lord his mercy is more stronger than darkness new every morn our sins they are many
happened in the sense of Ahab eternally. All I know is that God gave him a lot of chances. What he did with them, uh, we just don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly that. Now, during a lot of Ahab's reign, the country and the people were doing pretty well financially, economically. For many, it seemed like evil paid off. Um, the godly suffered if they didn't want to join into the Baal worship. But as I was thinking about those kinds of thoughts, I, I, I was pointed back to Psalm 73. And verse 1 says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. Now what, what was Asaph struggling with? Why was he going through these kinds of difficulties? Well, verse 3 says, I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. And, and on one level, you can almost hear him saying, Asaph saying, Lord, I, I'm being good. Look at me. I'm, I go to the temple. I do all these things. I, I write psalms for other people to be able to praise you. Why am I going through all this tough stuff? Why is it that I'm the one that has hard times when the evil people all around me, they're just rolling in whatever they want? Verse 4, he says, They seem to live painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. Now, at this point, you're getting the sense that maybe he's not seeing things very clearly. But this is how it feels to Asaph at this point, when he's thinking about the wicked being uh, able to prosper and, and the godly not. So they wear pride like a jeweled necklace, and they clothe themselves with cruelty. And, and, and on one level, I can hear him saying, Why, Lord? Why would you bless them? Why don't you bring your judgment on them? They deserve your judgment. Why don't you do that? And, and he continues in that same kind of theme uh, we'll drop on down to verse 16. Asa finally seeks answers from God, and he says, So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. And then verse 17, that really key verse. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. It seems that he was basically just got quiet before God, and God finally was able to start working on his conscience, on his thoughts, and bring things to mind. And began to realize that, oh, yeah, maybe they prosper here and they look good here, but this isn't what it's all about. It's about what's coming. And the more he thought about their eternal destiny, the more everything came into focus for him. I have a quote that really, really struck me in, in, in this sense of the wicked. And it's this, the best life, the best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst of life is a glimpse of hell. For Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. For unbelievers, it's the closest they will come to heaven. And I think that fits exactly what he said. I understood their destiny, and it may seem like they're getting all these goodies and everything's great, but for them... The end will come. In verse 21, he says, Then I realized my heart was bitter. I was all torn up. And so, on one level, at this point, now he's looked, he stood before God, and he's realized that, that he wasn't looking at it correctly. And then looking at himself even more closely, he says, Yeah, I'm, I'm really bitter and torn up about this. Verse 22, there's, there's some confession. I, I, I was so foolish and ignorant. Lord, I must have seemed like a, like a senseless animal to you. 
looking at myself and envy and my desires and what I want. That was my focus. And then in verse 23, thankfully, yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And so fully realizing the realities of all of that, realizing that he still belongs to God, that God's the one that he he needs to look to. Verse 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Whom am I in heaven but you? And I desire nothing but you? Have you ever thought that through? Can we really be honest about that? Whom have I in heaven but you? Lord, you're it, and you're all I need, and you're all I want. That's what he's saying. Whom have I in heaven but you, and I desire you more than anything here. What an incredible prayer. And what an incredible prayer to pray and to be able to say, Lord, I may not even be able to say that honestly, but I want to. I want to be able to say, I desire you more than anything around me. My health may fail, he says, my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He's mine forever. That's incredible again. On one level, what he's saying is, I have no one in heaven but the Lord. Can I say, there's one God apart from me? There's nothing else? Can I really say, I desire you more, Lord, than my own health, or peace in my family, or the workplace? Can I say, I desire you more than my children walking with you? I love you more than longer having spiritual, emotional struggles. I desire you more than any of those things. Those things, those things are secondary. Let's go and look at the verse again. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. Is there another one there, Daryl? Nope, there's not. Okay, just go back to that one there. Thank you. As we uh, kind of close this out this morning, I just want us to stop and think about that. Can I be honest? Whom have I in heaven but you? And maybe that's one of the things we need to sit down at some point this next week and say, Lord, am I okay with this? Are there things that I desire more than you? Because I don't want that to be the case. I don't want anything on earth to be so amazing and precious and thing I love so much that I'd rather be here than with you. Because that's what we're actually saying when we say, I desire you more than anything on earth. I desire you more. And I leave that challenge with you and with me for this week. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that... You challenge us. You challenge us to think about what's really important and to think about eternity and to think about even those people that we know that are lost and what their eternity will look like. Lord Jesus, help me and help us to 
to be willing to make those conversations, have those conversations with, uh, with others. And Lord, especially, I pray that you'd help me to get that whole idea of whom have I got in heaven but you and desiring you more than anything else. Lord, I long for that to be the reality in my life and in the reality of us as a church family as well. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.